Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, the creators of the 1939 Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer film, The Wizard of Oz. And while we're at it, why don't you head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy of my novel. Is that your final answer? Now let's begin our story about The Wizard of Oz. On August 15, 1939, the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer musical The Wizard of Oz, starring Judy Garland and many other top-flight MGM contract players, made its Hollywood debut at Grauman's Chinese Theater. This film, the culmination of decades of Hollywood attempts to bring this iconic children's classic to the screen, has evolved into an American phenomenon driven by an entire generation's enjoyment of this film's annual television screening. Its characters, songs, and quotations continue to resonate in American popular culture over 80 years after the film's production and release. According to the Library of Congress, it is the most viewed film in the history of motion pictures. Along the way, many individuals made key contributions to this remarkable creation of a timeless cinema classic. Long before The Wizard of Oz was produced as a film, the children's novel, written by L. Frank Baum, had already achieved immense popularity. Born in 1856 in upstate New York, Baum's background was typical of many American journeymen attempting to eke out a living in late 19th century America. Although interested in writing from an early age, he initially spent his 20s as both a member of a touring acting troupe, as well as a salesman for his uncle's carriage lubricant, Baum's Castorine. Eventually tiring of these financially unproductive efforts, in 1888, Baum and his wife made the decision to move from Syracuse to present-day Aberdeen, South Dakota. Initially a shopkeeper, when his store went bankrupt, he acquired and then began publishing and editing the local newspaper, the Aberdeen Saturday Pioneer. As a columnist, Baum expressed his views on various issues, including politics and current events, but this venture was also a failure, and Baum and his family returned to Chicago, where he was employed as a reporter for a large daily, the Chicago Evening Post. He also again supplemented his income as a salesman, but his enterprising mind continued to produce ideas involving creative writing. In 1897, Baum finally was able to achieve modest success with his first children's work of fiction, Mother Goose in Prose, 22 short stories based on Mother Goose nursery rhymes, illustrated by Maxwell Parrish. His next effort, Father Goose, a collection of original verse, was a collaboration with an illustrator named W.W. W. Denslow, 
an individual as imaginative and quirky as Baum. The book was a publishing sensation, the illustrations unlike anything seen previously in children's literature. It catapulted Baum out of financial insecurity and allowed him to finally focus completely on his writing. The result would surpass anything even Baum could possibly imagine. For much of 1899, L. Frank Baum spent his time composing a new children's novel. He drew on both his imagination and his experiences in the Midwest, his work incorporating the geographical nuances, climatic conditions, and meteorological calamities of the region into his invention of a completely imaginary location known as the Land of Oz. Baum is said to have been prompted by letters arranged O-Z in one of his file cabinets to hit upon this designation. His story revolves around a young girl named Dorothy, who, caught in her house in the midst of a cyclone, is transported from the Kansas prairie to the mystical and beautiful Oz. The tale is fundamentally about her attempt to return home, eventually succeeding with the help of several memorable characters after a succession of remarkable events and tribulations. After so many years of struggle, the book not only came easily to Baum, but he knew when the manuscript was completed that he had composed something very special. On October 9, 1899, he took the pencil used during this book's composition and framed it with the inscription, With this pencil, I wrote the manuscript of the Emerald City. Although his title was dropped by his publishers and several other titles were considered before the book's eventual publication, the novel was released officially on September 1, 1900 as The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Baum made a deal with W.W. Denslow to illustrate the book, a 50-50 split, and the illustrations again broke new ground in children's literature. By October of 1900, the book was well into sales of its second edition and a runaway success, and Baum's first royalty check in December of 1900 was for $3,000, approximately $100,000 today. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz remained the best-selling child's book for more than two years after its release. A true visionary, Baum also began the tie-in process of producing a stage musical version of the Oz story. In fact, the willingness of a Chicago producer to agree to stage such an effort was a major factor in convincing Baum's publisher, George M. Hill, to even release the book in the first place. With W.W. Denslow's stage and costume input, a theatrical version of The Wizard of Oz premiered on June 16, 1902, at the Chicago Grand Opera House. Baum's original script paralleled the novel, but was rejected by the film's prominent director, Julian Mitchell. Mitchell rewrote much of the script, changed the story entirely, and essentially attempted to concoct something with appeal to adults rather than children, adding topical jokes that mentioned prominent public figures of the day. Baum had his misgivings, but ultimately relied on the director's extensive stage experience, and upon its release, the musical was extremely popular. In January of 1903, the show premiered on Broadway, where it ran for two years and 293 performances. A subsequent production toured the country until 1911. Thereafter, this version was performed by non-professional entities on a frequent and consistent basis.
The Oz concept was so popular that Baum was compelled to write a much-demanded sequel, The Marvelous Land of Oz, in 1904. While the public clamored for such an undertaking, Baum had another reason to produce this work, money. Despite the great success of Baum's first Oz book, his publisher, George M. Hill, went bankrupt in early 1902. The author also got into a dispute with W.W. Denslow over royalties for the musical. Denslow claiming that he was entitled to 50% of these payments as per their original arrangement. Baum did not agree, but ultimately expensively settled the case out of court and subsequently refused to even speak with Denslow again. He then collaborated for many years with John R. Neal, whose workmanlike representations were satisfactory but lacking the unique quality of Denslow's earlier efforts. Denslow himself responded to this business setback by actually buying Blucks Island off of the coast of Bermuda and declaring himself the ruler of his own kingdom as Denslow I. He constructed a castle-like structure with a turret. This bizarre behavior intended to publicize subsequent efforts, which included an Oz-themed comic strip featuring the Tin Man and Scarecrow, and his own musical, The Pearl and the Pumpkin. This fanciful presentation was quite similar to The Wizard of Oz, but flopped after its Broadway debut, costing Denslow a bundle and forcing the sale of his island domain for $30,000. A heavy drinker, he found it difficult to land consistent employment upon his return to first Buffalo and then New York City, New York. In 1913, he hit bottom, designing brochures at an ad agency earning $25 a week. A 1915 uptick in his fortunes actually precipitated a disastrous outcome. Upon selling a front-page cover design to Life magazine for $250, Denslow went on a drinking binge, which resulted in pneumonia, death at age 59, and burial in a then-unmarked grave. Baum would suffer a similar experience in attempts to also finance various Oz productions for a live audience. After several such disasters, he filed for bankruptcy in 1911 after selling his Oz copyrights and resorting to writing under several pseudonyms. Baum always envisioned Oz as the perfect backdrop for an amusement park, and to pursue such a venture, he moved permanently to Los Angeles, acquiring land in central Hollywood in what was then mostly orange groves, building an elaborate two-story home he christened Ozcott, where he lived for the rest of his life. From this vantage point, Baum also recognized the potential of the motion picture industry, forming his own production company, the Oz Film Company. He actually managed to produce six motion pictures, but this venture also was not successful. Nothing came of plans for an amusement park, and by the end of the decade, in failing health, he survived by grinding out additional sequels of the Oz story, 17 in all, two published posthumously. Baum died of a stroke on May 6, 1919, age 62. Baum's death did not diminish numerous attempts to produce both stage and film renditions of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Perhaps the most famous film effort from this period occurred in 1925 as a vehicle for actor, screenwriter, and producer Larry Semin, who played the Scarecrow character. His fiancée, Dorothy Dwan, played Dorothy, and a pre-Laurel and Hardy, Oliver Hardy, played the Tin Man. The film radically departed from the novel, 
mostly to make Seven one of the central characters as the Scarecrow. The silent film did poorly, its failure so financially disastrous that eventually caused the 39-year-old Seven to file for bankruptcy, suffer a nervous breakdown, and eventual death at 39, only three years later. This failure did not halt Hollywood's pursuit of additional productions of the work. In 1934, film producer Samuel Goldwyn aided L. Frank Baum's widow in her attempt to regain the copyrights to the Oz series, an effort that was successful, and Goldwyn then purchased the film rights to the first and most famous title, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Goldwyn envisioned producing the film with actors ranging from Shirley Temple as Dorothy to Eddie Cantor as the wizard. But Cantor was not particularly enthusiastic, and the rumored production languished for several years until Goldwyn essentially gave up and auctioned off the film rights in a process that allowed MGM to acquire the property. Incidentally, although Goldwyn's name still was officially a part of the studio, he sold his own film company to Marcus Lowe, owner of Metro Pictures in 1924, who renamed the new entity Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer as a result. The mayor was Louis B. Mayer, who had also sold his Mayer Pictures to Lowe and retained a major leadership role in the merged entity. Sam Goldwyn had nothing to do with MGM, continuing his Hollywood career as an independent producer within his own company, Samuel Goldwyn Productions. It was another monumental Hollywood film which prompted MGM to begin laying the foundation for a lavish Technicolor production of L. Frank Baum's initial novel. Walt Disney's first feature film, Snow White, was released in late 1937, the animated film considered a risky and reckless gamble by Disney, especially when the budget skyrocketed to $1.5 million. This gamble paid off, the film grossing $8 million initially and landing Disney on the cover of Time only days after the film's theatrical release. Oz seemed an obvious project to attempt to duplicate this type of success. The head of MGM, Louis B. Mayer, thought likewise. Born Lazar Meir in the vicinity of Minsk, Russia, most likely on July 12, 1884, Meir emigrated to St. John's, New Brunswick, Canada, with his parents and siblings, anglicizing his name to Louis Burt Mayer. A high school dropout at age 12, Mayer worked within his father's junk and scrap metal business, crisscrossing St. John's in a wagon and salvaging any scrap of value. At age 20, in 1904, Mayer moved to Massachusetts and continued in the scrap metal trade, subsidizing his meager income by hustling various odd jobs. Even as a young man in New Brunswick, Mayer was fascinated by vaudeville and show business, perhaps as an escape from an impoverished and gloomy existence. He scraped together enough money to buy a seedy burlesque house in Haverhill, Massachusetts, and transformed it into a movie theater. Sensing that the motion picture business was on the cusp of widespread popularity, Mayer bought up additional theaters and formed a partnership to distribute films throughout New England. He paid D.W. Griffith $25,000 for the exclusive regional rights to show Birth of a Nation, typically without ever seeing the film himself, a deal which brought in four times the rights fee. Mayer also was interested in the production side of the film industry, establishing production entities first in New York and then in Los Angeles in 1918, where he formed his first production company, 
Louis B. Mayer Productions. Mayer liked to focus on the business aspects of his company, and in 1922 hired 23-year-old Irving Thalberg, an individual whose innovative production and story ideas already had earned him the nickname of the Boy Wonder of Hollywood. The aforementioned merger that created Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Thalberg's contribution as head of production transformed MGM into the dominant and most prestigious studio in the industry. However, Thalberg had a congenital heart condition and suffered a serious coronary event in 1932. By then, Mayer's relationship with the younger executive was strained, and he used Thalberg's medical condition as an excuse to demote and replace him with David O. Selznick and Walter Wanger. With the demotion and eventual premature death of Irving Thalberg in 1936, Mayer was able to consolidate his authority as both head of production and head of the studio, with the official title of Lowe's Corporation Vice President. Despite his name on the company title, Mayer was an employee and never an owner of the company. His $1.3 million salary in 1937 was the first seven-figure salary in American history, and he was the highest-salaried individual in the U.S. for the next nine years. Despite his autocratic style, Mayer understood his limitations and tended to leave artistic decisions to the roster of producers and directors on the MGM payroll. Although Mayer had creative differences with Irving Thalberg, he recognized that replacing him was essential if MGM was to retain its competitive edge. A former MGM employee once said of Mayer, he never made pictures, he made contracts. In an effort to bolster MGM talent behind the camera, Mayer poached one of Warner Brothers' most esteemed producer-directors in Mervyn Leroy. He secretly paid Leroy $6,000 a week, practically double what any other producer was making at MGM, although his salary did not remain secret for long. But Leroy was a veteran of nine years at Warner Brothers and well-known as both a quality filmmaker and efficient professional. His proposal to Mayer to purchase the rights to The Wizard of Oz was accepted with Mayer's personal interest and involvement. From the beginning, the production was designated as an important film, a prestige effort that might not make any money. Its initial $2 million budget eventually ballooned to $2.8 million, practically guaranteeing a loss upon initial release. Most MGM films cost less than $500,000 and were completely finished in no more than a month. The Wizard of Oz took over a year to complete, including pre-production, with filming alone lasting 22 weeks on 65 different sets and 25 acres of studio backlot. Ten different writers spent time taking a crack at adapting the bomb novel. The first was the legendary Herman Mankiewicz, eventual collaborator with Orson Welles on Citizen Kane, who was quickly reassigned after a 17-page treatment and an incomplete 50 pages of dialogue. Others, including Ogden Nash, worked on the screenplay with wholesale plot changes employed on a frequent basis. Eventual screen credit was divided among Noel Langley, Edgar Allan Wolfe, and Florence Ryerson. The final effort eliminated many of the novel's characters and events and changed Dorothy's excursion to Oz from a real experience to a dream incurred when she is knocked unconscious during the cyclone. Even the magical slippers, a major plot device in both the novel and film, are changed from silver to ruby to take advantage of the technicolor film process used for The Wizard of Oz. 
This process also precipitated an idea originated by Mervyn Leroy. The beginning and end of the film in Kansas was shot in black and white. Oz was entirely in technicolor, only one of several concepts that made The Wizard of Oz visually unusual. Even Mankiewicz's first draft incorporates this idea, but other changes would occur throughout filming, and the final film edit eliminated even more material. Oz was also different from most films in that music and songs were not only a major part of the film, they frequently drove plot for large segments of the movie, especially in the opening sequences in Munchkinland. To handle song composition, Leroy delegated this responsibility to Arthur Freed, a staff MGM assistant producer Mayer asked Leroy to use. Even songwriting was a conveyor belt affair at MGM, with staff songwriters well paid to churn out the components to the many musicals produced by the studio. Freed settled on Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg to provide this material. When they completed the songs themselves, the entire film was to be scored by another MGM staff musician, composer Herbert Stothart. Although cumbersome, the script and music for Oz was only part of the process of the film's pre-production. The most important and challenging undertaking was casting the actors for the production. Anticipating a huge budget, Lowe's president and mayor's boss, Nicholas Schenk, began to campaign for the casting of Shirley Temple as Dorothy, the child star riding the wave of success as America's most popular movie star for three years in a row. Having signed Judy Garland personally, Louis B. Mayer wanted to use her instead, believing the film would only strengthen what was a promising but still minor studio status. Luckily for Mayer and Garland, Shirley Temple was under contract to 20th Century Fox, and studio head Daryl Zanuck refused to consider a loan-out at any price. At the time, 15-year-old Judy Garland was an anomaly among MGM's rosters of female stars, with actresses like Jean Harlow, Lana Turner, Greta Garbo, Elizabeth Taylor, and Hedy Lamarr, MGM historically required female stars with electrifying charisma and stunning looks. Undoubtedly, Garland had a precocious singing talent, but compared to some of her adult associates, she was considered frumpy and even unattractive. There was also concern that Garland might be unbelievable, as the original Dorothy was a young girl and not a fully developed teenager. Nevertheless, she was cast, receiving a $500 a week salary, a figure that had increased every six months since she first signed with MGM in 1935 at age 13. Although barely a teenager, at that stage, Judy Garland had endured more family dysfunction and turmoil than most individuals experience in a lifetime. Born Frances Ethel Gum on June 10, 1922, in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, Judy's parents, Ethel and Frank, were vaudevillians who married not out of love, but to solidify a business relationship. Her father was part owner and manager of a Grand Rapids theater, the New Grand, that featured live entertainment, and Frances's sisters regularly performed there as a singing duo. A classic stage mother whose own vaudeville career went nowhere, Ethel Gum began rehearsals with Frances by the age of two, the child making her stage debut with her two sisters on December 26, 1925. The Gum sisters sang as a trio, the two-year-old Frances a curiosity, too young to really register as talented. 
Unfortunately, at age four, a family crisis involving Frank Gum allegedly propositioning some of the young male ushers at the New Grand necessitated a discreet but official request that the family get out of town. California was an obvious relocation choice, especially for the ambitious Ethel Gum. Frank could not afford to purchase any theaters in central Los Angeles. The best he could do was the Valley Theater in the remote desert town of Lancaster, two hours north of Hollywood. The Gum Trio started performing upon their arrival and became an immediate hit in such a small town. By then, Little Francis was clearly the most talented of the three, but the trio itself was good enough that by 1928, they appeared regularly on L.A. radio station KFI. Ethel also enrolled her daughters in a prominent Hollywood dancing school, taking them there for instruction every weekend. It became clear that Francis, now known within the family as Babe, had far more talent than her two sisters, and they were only too willing to let their domineering mother focus her perpetually controlling attention on their youngest sister. If Baby Gum's own life was certainly unusual, the strife in her parents' marriage added additional unhappiness. Almost upon arrival in Lancaster, Ethel looked for an excuse to reside somewhere else, and her children's show business careers gave her the perfect opportunity. Eventually, she rented an apartment in central L.A. and even got an entertainment job, effectively separating from her husband. She also enrolled her three children permanently in a Hollywood school that catered to child performers. Although Babe was clearly the star, the Gum Sisters were a featured act throughout Los Angeles and appeared in venues on a national basis, especially after their stage name was changed to the Garland Sisters. The trio abruptly ruptured when one of Francis's sisters ran off and got married in Lake Tahoe, Nevada. Ethel kept pushing Francis anyway, and even after rejections by all of the major studios, she got Roger Edens, an MGM assistant producer, to personally audition Francis, recently renamed Judy. This led to another audition with Louis B. Mayer personally, the 13-year-old impressive enough to be signed on September 27, 1935. Roger Edens was tight with Arthur Freed, another reason Judy was tapped to play Dorothy. Although she became an integral part of the Andy Hardy series with Mickey Rooney, she was still perceived as the girl-next-door type, and in 1938, Edens, Freed, and Mayer were hoping that The Wizard of Oz would be the role that established her as a major star. Most of the other roles were plugged in with various MGM contract players or veteran character actors who got salaries lasting only a few weeks. Ray Bolger was initially asked to play the Tin Man, although he had his heart set on the Scarecrow. Buddy Ebsen didn't really care who he played, and his agreement to swap roles with Bolger and play the Tin Man had dire consequences. A second-tier actor, Burt Lahr, better known for his Broadway comedic ability, was cast as the Cowardly Lion. The key role of the Wicked Witch of the West offered up some studio intrigue when Leroy got the idea that instead of a traditionally ugly crone with a hooked nose, his witch would also be malevolent but in a glamorous, typically metro bombshell fashion. Gail Sondergaard, an Academy Award winner, actually shot two separate screen tests, one in stylish sequin dress and hat, and another as a traditionally ugly witch. When it was decided that the uglier look was more appropriate, Sondergaard balked. Ultimately, the less attractive but more experienced Margaret Hamilton was signed, 
a casting that had an incalculable long-term effect on the film's legacy. Casting the wizard also proved to be a challenging process, the producers dead set on luring W.C. Fields from Universal. When Fields demanded a $100,000 guarantee, Metro countered with $75,000 and wouldn't budge. Neither did Fields, who claimed publicly that he had no time to spare from his own film projects. Instead, Leroy went back to the studio roster and came up with Frank Morgan, a veteran MGM actor, already under contract. Although casting the major parts played by typical actors was fraught with the usual complications, the producers were left with two other much more complicated casting issues. The dog Toto, depicted by Denslow, seemed a straightforward small terrier, but finding such an animal able to function in a soundstage environment amidst the typical commotion, lighting, and sound effects became a formidable project in itself. Dozens of visually suitable dogs were auditioned by Leroy personally. None were even close to what the role technically required. This process grew so unproductive that consideration was even given to dressing up an actor in a dog costume. Finally, a professional dog trainer with previous experience providing animals to the motion picture industry heard about this unique talent search. Carl Spitz was a German immigrant operating a 10-acre kennel, dog boarding, and training facility in the San Fernando Valley who occasionally padded his income with a movie role for one of his trained pets. The St. Bernard used in Clark Gable's 1933 Call of the Wild was to date Spitz's most famous canine movie star. Upon hearing about MGM's difficulty in finding just the right animal, Spitz took a gamble on a small female cairn terrier he owned named Terry. Initially, a dog dropped off by a customer for traditional training Spitz kept the dog when the patron couldn't afford to pay the bill and never came back to retrieve the animal. Terry was so shy that Spitz figured he could never train it to work in films, but in 1934, an MGM director familiar with Spitz's kennel was desperate enough to try and use Terry in a Shirley Temple film. The dog performed beautifully and appeared in several subsequent movies, but Spitz wasn't sure the small, still somewhat timid animal could handle such a massive production. Upon entering MGM Studios with the dog, Spitz was immediately escorted to the Thalberg building, where the entire pre-production crew was attempting to get the Wizard of Oz into filming as quickly as possible. Terry was practically cast on sight, with Spitz using nonverbal commands to get what became America's most famous Cairn Terrier through its usual tricks. Spitz's only regret was that he did not realize how desperate MGM was, agreeing to a weekly salary of a mere $125 a week. Even MGM knew that they could never be able to fulfill the final casting requirement of the film. With Dorothy landing smack in the middle of Munchkinland and the plot moved forward in a series of songs by the region's residents, the studio did not even bother to use a traditional on-site casting approach to locate and sign the 100-plus actors and extras necessary for these sequences. Their first move was to outsource this process to Leo Singer, the operator of a troupe of performing vaudevillians known as the Singer Midgets. With only approximately 30 performers under management, Singer was compelled to locate appropriately sized actors on his own. 
MGM also put the word out nationally through entertainment industry columnists and newspaper articles that any individual who was short in stature and had any kind of singing or dancing ability should contact the studio. These combined efforts produced approximately 120 adults, most suffering from dwarfism, and approximately 10 children, most of the latter to be used as crowd extras. While Singer contributed many of those eventually cast, another sizable contingent was transported by bus from New York after talent agents scoured the eastern seaboard for any suitable performers. For those who didn't live in the Los Angeles area, Singer handled the logistics of room and board, placing most of his curious group in the Culver Hotel right down the street from MGM Studios in Culver City. Some of the initial pre-production screen tests and rehearsals were handled by director Norman Torog in August of 1938, a kind of studio audition. So unimpressive were the results that another MGM director, Richard Thorpe, was assigned to take over when actual filming began. Known for efficiency and speed, Thorpe raced through scenes quickly. Two weeks elapsed before Mervyn Leroy got a look at Thorpe's work, and he was not pleased. Judy Garland was filmed in a glamorous blonde wig, completely wrong for a Kansas farm girl. The cornfield where the scarecrow is encountered for the first time looked unrealistically cartoonish, and other aspects of scenes involving Margaret Hamilton were also off, in Leroy's opinion. With the studio always mindful of bad publicity, it was announced that Thorpe was seriously ill and needed to be replaced. Leroy brought in director George Cukor, not to shoot additional scenes, but to help with many cosmetic changes, and Cukor's involvement lasted for only a few weeks. He moved on to another arduous directing task, the MGM David Selznick co-produced Gone with the Wind. Simultaneously, Another health issue did arise when Buddy Epson began to have a bad reaction to the powdered aluminum makeup used to depict him as the Tin Man. He began to ingest this fine dust into his lungs and became so ill that he collapsed, requiring hospitalization. Two weeks later, when the studio insisted that he return to work, his doctors refused, and Epson spent six weeks on a ventilator. This incident essentially ended Epson's MGM career. He did not return to acting until 1949, following military service during World War II. But his eventual television career skyrocketed with roles as Fess Parker's sidekick in the Disney-produced Davy Crockett, superstardom as Jed Clampett and the Beverly Hillbillies, and later as Barnaby Jones. But that was decades away, and his current predicament necessitated the signing from Fox Studios of Jack Haley, another experienced song and dance man who would be subjected to similarly hazardous wardrobe and makeup applications. To circumvent the breathing issues suffered by Ebsen, the aluminum makeup was applied in a paste that was also toxic and had to be prevented from entering the eyes. Almost all of Haley's fellow cast members faced similar challenges stemming from the daily grind of wardrobe and makeup. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about the Wizard of Oz. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books, The Real Wizard, The Life and Times of L. Frank Baum, 
by Rebecca Longcrane. Victor Fleming, An American Master by Michael Schregau. The Making of the Wizard of Oz by Algene Harmetz. And The Road to Oz by Jay Scarfoni and William Stillman. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com, as well as information about my new novel, Is That Your Final Answer? If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.